Hey everybody, this is Steve Carroll, and this is the EM Basic Podcast. Today's episode is on the evaluation and management of sickle cell disease in the emergency department. Dr. Jared Walker, a third-year EM resident at the University of Florida Jacksonville, has written and recorded this excellent review of sickle cell disease. This episode will discuss how to properly assess patients with sickle cell, how to order the right labs and imaging, what red flags to look out for, how to control sickle cell pain, how to catch the various complications of sickle cell, and proper patient disposition. With that, let's get started on sickle cell disease by Dr. Jared Walker. Hello, everyone, and welcome to EM Basic. My name is Jared Walker, and I'm currently at PGY3 at the University of Florida in Jacksonville Emergency Medicine Program. I want to thank Steve Carroll and all of you listeners for having me on the podcast. I've been a longtime listener, and it's truly an honor to be able to contribute to the EM Basic project. Today, we are going to talk about the emergency management of sickle cell anemia. We'll discuss the approach to a patient presenting with a sickle cell pain crisis. We'll do a review of some of the can't-miss diagnoses when patients present with sickle cell pain, and the overall management of acute pain crises as well as acute chest syndrome. Patients with sickle cell anemia present a unique challenge to emergency physicians. They are patients who are high risk for a number of complications, including sepsis, pulmonary embolism, and acute chest syndrome, just to name a few. They can present to the emergency department fairly frequently, and it's easy to anchor on the diagnosis of a typical vaso-occlusive crisis or opioid-seeking behavior. Both of those should be diagnoses of exclusion, and while there is legitimate concern for opioid dependence in these patients, the rates of dependence have been found to be pretty low in the literature and on par with the general population. Remember, these patients have dealt with pain for their entire lives and have developed various ways to cope with that pain. They may not appear like our usual patients with pain, say from kidney stones where they're writhing around on the stretcher, and the typical vital signs we associate with pain, like tachycardia or hypertension. Also, their general appearance may not correlate with the amount of pain that they are reporting. It's easy to see someone playing Angry Birds on their cell phone and not believe them when they say that they are in pain. But keep in mind that these patients will often use distractions or even sleep as a way to escape the pain that they are having. But it's our duty, as in all patients that present to the emergency department, to treat and be vigilant about relieving pain and suffering. We need to do our due diligence in not only adequately treating pain crises, but ruling out other life-threatening diseases as well. This can obviously be challenging, but hey, that's why we do what we do, right? So let's start with a quick review of sickle cell disease and what an acute pain crisis is. Sickle cell anemia is a worldwide disease. 250 million people, or 4.5% of the entire human population, carry the sickle cell gene. It is more common in those with African descent, but can be found in those with South Asian, Mediterranean, or Indian ancestry as well. So do not assume if your patient isn't African American that they can't have sickle cell disease. It has been well known to give protection against the malaria parasite, which can explain its geographic distribution. It is the most common genetic disease in the United States, and it affects approximately 100,000 people currently living in the United States. To make a long story short, sickle cell anemia is the result of a genetic mutation causing an abnormal hemoglobin molecule. It is a recessive gene, so only people with both copies of the gene will have sickle cell disease. This is also known as hemoglobin SS or SS disease. People that are heterozygous for the sickle cell mutation are termed sickle cell trait. These people are usually asymptomatic, but can occasionally have complications under severe physical stress, tissue hypoxia, or severe acidosis. Hemoglobin SC results from one sickle cell mutation and one mutation for hemoglobin C. 
Hemoglobin C will tend to precipitate crystals inside the red blood cell under periods of stress, forming a more rigid cell and increasing blood viscosity. Patients with hemoglobin SC will have a less severe disease, but can have many of the same complications as those with hemoglobin SS. Another form made up of one sickle cell mutation and one beta thalassemia mutation can also cause moderate to severe disease and present with similar pain crises and complications. So under periods of physiologic stress like dehydration, illness, pain, or even emotional stress, the hemoglobin molecule forms the characteristic sickled appearance. This leads to a vicious cycle of ongoing hemolysis with worsening sickling and clumps of sickled cells sticking, for lack of a better word, together. This results in partial or complete occlusion of whatever blood vessel they happen to be in. To use a visual analogy, try to imagine yourself floating down a river in an inner tube in your favorite spring break location. You are floating along nicely with a large number of fellow spring breakers, engaging in responsible consumption of various beverages. Suddenly the river becomes very shallow, exposing the rocky bottom. As the inner tubes hit the rocks, they pop and deflate, and the acumen attempts to hold on to their neighbor's tube, which has also popped and deflated. This goes on and on until the river is eventually clogged with deflated inner tubes and stranded passengers. Now remember this doesn't only occur in the bone marrow resulting in painful crises, but can happen in the lungs, kidneys, brain, spleen, heart, or liver, resulting in the many complications patients with sickle cell disease can have. Okay, let's move on and start with a patient. First, we'll begin with looking at the triage note and the chief complaint. The patient is a 26-year-old male with sickle cell anemia who presents to the ED with a pain crisis. He complains of chest and back pain that has been worsening over several hours. Vital signs include a heart rate of 102, temperature is 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, respiratory rate is 22, blood pressure is 124 over 80, and his O2 sat is 98%. Almost every triage chief complaint for a patient with sickle cell disease will say sickle cell pain crisis. But like I mentioned previously, be careful not to anchor on that diagnosis because you can easily miss some life-threatening conditions if you do. Pay close attention to the vital signs as even minor abnormalities can be a sign of serious disease in these patients. So start the interview from scratch and ask the patient what brought them to the emergency department. In addition to your usual OPQRST questions, make sure you ask specifically about chest pain, cough, fever, chills, back pain, abdominal pain, and extremity pain. Does this pain feel typical of previous pain crises? If not, then you will need to broaden your workup in differential. How often do they have pain crises? What pain medication have they taken at home, and are they taking it properly? When was the last time they saw their hematologist, and when was their last transfusion? Also ask if the patient knows their baseline hemoglobin level, as this may become important later. On physical exam, first assess whether the patient appears toxic or not just by looking at them. Next, make sure you listen to breath sounds, perform an abdominal exam to assess for tenderness as well as spinomegaly or hepatomegaly. Look for signs of infection like bony tenderness for osteomyelitis, septic arthritis, or epidural abscess. Finally, don't forget the skin and look for signs of cellulitis or abscess. Alright, let's go back to the history. Our patient says that over the past several days, he's had chest and lower back pain that feels similar to previous pain crises, but over the past several hours, the pain in his chest has worsened and caused worsening shortness of breath, along with a dry cough and subjective fever. 
He says his last transfusion was six months ago and has a pain crisis about three to four times per year. He takes hydroxyurea and has been taking 10 milligrams of Percocet, aka oxycodone and acetaminophen, every four hours during the crisis. And his hemoglobin usually runs between 8 and 9. On exam, he appears mildly uncomfortable. There is no scleral icterus. He has mild rails in the left lung base, but he does not appear short of breath. There is mild central chest wall and lower back tenderness palpation, but no signs of infection. There is no abdominal tenderness to palpation. Before we move on, let's go over the differential diagnosis for the patient. Remember to not only consider the emergencies specific to sickle cell disease, but also think about emergencies any other patient can have. These patients can still have an acute MI or appendicitis, so don't forget your usual life threats as well. They can't miss diagnosis in patients with sickle cell disease are acute chest syndrome, aplastic crisis, splenic sequestration, hepatic crises, sepsis, stroke, and pulmonary embolism. The most common diagnosis when sickle cell patients present to the ED with acute pain is an acute vasoocclusive crisis. But remember, this must be a diagnosis of exclusion when all the previous diagnoses are ruled out. Try to prove to yourself that this is not just a vasoocclusive crisis and consider the life-threatening diagnoses and rule them out either by history and physical or appropriate lab work and imaging. Let me repeat that. Vasoocclusive crisis is a diagnosis of exclusion. We'll talk in more detail about acute chest syndrome, but for now let's go over the high points of some of the other serious diagnoses real quick. Aplastic crisis is an acute illness that is usually caused by an infection, specifically parvovirus B19 infection for those of you studying for your board exam. Patients typically present with worsening fatigue or a viral syndrome. They will have an acute drop in their hemoglobin but will not have signs of hemolysis. Their reticulocyte count will be low because of decreased bone marrow production from the viral infection itself or due to bone marrow infarction. This is in contrast with an acute vasoocclusive crisis where the reticulocyte count should be elevated. This is usually self-resolving, but a simple transfusion may be needed until the bone marrow starts working again. Splenic sequestration occurs because of pooling of red blood cells in the spleen, causing splenic enlargement and usually associated left upper quadrant pain. This is more common in children than adults since there is more viable splenic tissue remaining. These patients are usually very sick and in a shocked state due to the acute loss in blood volume. They will present with hypotension, pallor, lethargy, and may have an enlarged spleen on exam. The treatment is volume resuscitation and simple red blood cell transfusion, and they will need to be monitored in an intensive care setting. And in very severe cases, splenectomy may be needed. Hepatic sequestration, similar to splenic sequestration, is the result of pulling of red blood cells in the liver during a vasoocclusive crisis. This results in an acute drop in hemoglobin and hepatic congestion with hepatomegaly. They'll present with right upper quadrant pain and can also be very ill-appearing with hypotension and shock. This can be hard to distinguish from acute intrahepatic cholestasis, which will usually be a more impressive presentation with a more dramatic increase in bilirubin and liver function test. It is thought that the underlying mechanism for these diseases is similar, but that they represent different spectrums of severity. They are both treated with aggressive resuscitation and simple or exchange transfusion. Now, sepsis has been covered extensively in other podcasts and publications, so I won't go over the finer points here. I just want to emphasize that since these patients are functionally asplenic at a very young age, 
They are extremely susceptible to serious bacterial infection, particularly from encapsulated organisms. For those of you further removed from medical school, that includes Neisseria meningitidis, Haemophilus influenza, and Streptococcus pneumoniae. The serious bacterial infections to always consider are meningitis, septic arthritis, osteomyelitis, and acute chest syndrome. Mortality rates from sepsis have been drastically reduced from prophylactic penicillin in the pediatric population, but we still must take fever in any patient with sickle cell disease very seriously. Like I mentioned earlier, the most important part of the physical exam is identifying a source of infection, so always perform a very complete and thorough physical exam. A very low threshold for initiating broad-spectrum antibiotics, drawing blood cultures, and admitting patients who present with a fever without an obvious source. Okay, so let's stop here, take a breather, and review what we've gone over so far. We've discussed the prevalence of sickle cell anemia in the affected patient population. It's a worldwide disease, and particularly in the United States, it accounts for a high number of emergency department visits, so we must understand this disease well. Hemoglobin SS is the most severe form of the disease, with hemoglobin SC causing a more moderate disease. Sickle cell trait is generally asymptomatic, only causing rare complications, and does not cause pain crises. These patients can be challenging to manage because they are set up for a whole host of complications, and we must be vigilant every time we see a patient presenting with, with sickle cell pain. The can't-miss diagnoses when patients present acutely are acute chest syndrome, sepsis or infection, pulmonary embolism, splenic sequestration, hepatic crises, and stroke. Remember, acute vasoclusive crisis is the most common reason patients will present, but this is a diagnosis of exclusion after we've ruled out all the other life-threatening diagnoses. Be on the lookout for serious bacterial infection in these patients, and be sure not to miss meningitis, osteomyelitis, or septic arthritis. Aplastic crisis is characterized by an acute drop in hemoglobin with a low reticulocyte count, and is usually caused by parvovirus B19. In contrast with vasoclusive crisis, splenic sequestration, or hepatic crisis, where there should be signs of hemolysis and an elevated reticulocyte count, treat splenic sequestration and hepatic sequestration with aggressive resuscitation with crystalloids, as well as simple or exchange transfusion. We started to take care of a patient presenting with a sickle cell pain crisis. He's a 26-year-old male who is presenting with dull, throbbing, low back pain, and chest pain, who says this feels fairly similar to his previous pain crises. He appears well but is slightly tachycardic at 102, but he's afebrile and has an oxygen saturation of 98%. We've considered all the life-threatening diagnoses I mentioned before and have done a very thorough history and physical exam. So let's say after all this evaluation, we think our patient is suffering from an acute vaso-occlusive crisis. So let's go over quickly what an acute vaso-occlusive crisis is, the workup, and the treatment. An acute vaso-occlusive crisis can be caused by infection, dehydration, stress, or cold. But keep in mind it can often not have an obvious precipitating event, so do not assume that, there, that if there is no obvious trigger, then the patient isn't having a pain crisis. It is the result of intravascular sickling of red blood cells and small blood vessel occlusion, resulting in ischemic and microinfarction in the affected tissues. This is the mechanism we illustrated so well in our floating river analogy. It usually presents as diffuse bone, muscle, or joint pain or mild fever. Patients often describe the pain as dull, throbbing, achy, usually in the lower, backs or lower back or joints. The diagnosis of an acute vaso-occlusive crisis is mainly a clinical diagnosis. 
Their vital signs can be normal, and there is no lab test that will diagnose an acute pain crisis. The hemoglobin, reticulocyte count, or white blood cell count are largely unhelpful. The diagnosis is usually made initially by the patients themselves, and they may just tell you it feels like a typical pain crisis for them. If a patient is presenting with an uncomplicated pain crisis, labs may not be indicated. Reason to get labs would be if you're considering another diagnosis, if you think the patient is going to be admitted, or if you're practicing in an area where you do not see a lot of patients with sickle cell disease. In those cases, getting a reticulocyte count, a CBC, BMP, LDH, or liver function panel may be ordered. The treatment of an acute vasoclusive crisis is mainly at aggressive pain control, appropriate hydration and oxygenation, and addressing any underlying cause for the crisis. Pain control is typically achieved by IV opioids and other adjuncts like acetaminophen or NSAIDs. Keep in mind, however, that patients with sickle cell disease may have some degree of chronic renal injury due to microinfarcts, so treatment with NSAIDs should be limited to a shorter course if prescribed as an outpatient. However, a single dose of Gatorlite can be considered for an acute pain crisis and actually may be quite effective. Even better, there was a recent study in the Annals of Emergency Medicine that suggests that you may not need more than 10 milligrams of Gatorlite IV to get the maximal effect. However, this study did not include patients with sickle cell disease, so it may not translate directly to this patient population. Morphine and hydromorphone are currently recommended for first-line therapy. Meperidine or Demerol, which used to be given routinely in these patients, is currently not recommended due to high risk of seizures. An appropriate dose, usually 0.1 mg per kilogram of morphine, or 0.015 mg per kilogram of hydromorphone, should be given initially. This works out to about a dose of 6 to 8 mg of morphine, or 0.5 to 1 mg of hydromorphone in a typical 70 kg adult. The patient should be reassessed every 15 to 30 minutes until pain control is achieved and redosed as appropriate. Ketamine in subdissociative doses has also been looked at as an opioid sparing alternative, but evidence for its use in sickle cell crisis is currently limited to case reports and case studies. If you are comfortable with giving ketamine, which most emergency physicians these days are, and your institution allows, it may not be a bad option. Keep in mind that some institutions may have individualized treatment plans for these patients if they are known to your sickle cell clinic. If that's the case, you should definitely follow these pain control plans initially, which may allow, may allow you to get the patient's pain under control quickly by giving the right dose of opioid up front or even avoiding opioids if the patient responds to Gatorolac. Some of these patients may be very opioid tolerant and need larger than usual doses of opioids to control their pain. In that case, follow their treatment plan along with your institutional guidelines and your clinical comfort in giving larger than usual doses of opioids. Now, hydration and fluid selection have been somewhat of a controversial topic since there hasn't really been much evidence-based consensus on what the right fluids are or how much fluids to give. In the past, aggressive rehydration was a mainstay of the management of pain crises since dehydration is thought to trigger the episodes. But now the recommendations are not to bolus fluids if they are not in hypotension or in shock. Oral rehydration or maintenance fluids should be given if the patient is tolerating PO or if they only appear mildly dehydrated. Over-resuscitation with isotonic fluids, particularly a normal saline, can cause a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis, which can actually promote sickling. It can also complicate conditions like acute chest syndrome by causing atelectasis or pulmonary edema. 
Let's talk about red blood cell transfusions in patients with sickle cell disease. For this podcast, we'll keep it to two basic forms, simple transfusion and exchange transfusion. Simple transfusions are simply adding red blood cells to the existing blood volume, and the goal is to reduce the percentage of sickled cells and therefore improve perfusion. Exchange transfusion, on the other hand, is replacing sickled cells with normal red blood cells without increasing the hematocrit or blood viscosity. One unit of red blood cells is removed from the patient per each packed cells that are transfused. This can be done quickly and safely, but is more resource intensive and not usually done in the emergency department. So when are transfusions for acute vasoocclusive crisis indicated? Well, the short answer is hardly ever. If a patient is presenting with an uncomplicated sickle cell pain crisis, then a red blood cell transfusion is not indicated. A simple or exchange transfusion in the acute setting should only be given in the following circumstances. Acute blood loss, splenic or hepatic crises, acute chest syndrome, stroke, aplastic crises, or hemolysis. It should also be done in conjunction with a hematologist as these patients are at risk for alloimmunization, iron overload, and hyperviscosity, not to mention all the other risks involved with transfusions. Okay, so let's get back to our patient. We give him 6 milligrams of morphine, start him on a D5 half-normal saline drip as he appears a little bit dehydrated. He feels a little bit better, but he's still tachycardic at 110, and now has a fever of 102 degrees Fahrenheit. We decide to draw some labs and order a chest x-ray as his oxygen saturation is now at 91%. His lab work reveals a hemoglobin of 6, a white blood cell count of 14, an elevated reticulocyte count, normal platelets, and a normal basic metabolic panel. He looks like he is having a little bit harder time breathing and is having a persistent cough. We get a chest x-ray that shows a left lower lobe consolidation. On re-examining the patient, he now looks to be a little bit more respiratory distress, and his oxygen saturation is 85% and 4 liters nasal cannula. Hmm, he's not looking quite as good now. Could we be missing something? Could this be acute chest syndrome? Well, let's review quickly what acute chest syndrome is and the diagnosis and treatment. Acute chest syndrome is traditionally defined by fever, respiratory symptoms, and a new infiltrate on chest x-ray. Hypoxia can suggest increased severity of disease, but does not have to be present to make the diagnosis. Acute chest syndrome refers to a spectrum of disease that can range from a minor upper respiratory infection to severe respiratory distress or even failure. It is usually caused by infection, but can also be caused by pulmonary embolism, fat embolism, or pulmonary infarction. The initial trigger leads to hypoxia, resulting in a vicious cycle of worsening pulmonary vaso-occlusion and infarction. The treatment is supportive care, including oxygenation, respiratory support if needed, and hydration, but be careful to not overhydrate. Antibiotics should always be given and aimed at typical and atypical organisms, unless there is a reason to suspect healthcare-associated pneumonia. These patients are usually admitted to an ICU setting where they can receive close monitoring and respiratory support. If they fail to improve, then an exchange transfusion should be done. Since our patient is now having worsening respiratory distress, hypoxia, and fever, we astutely diagnose him with acute chest syndrome. We place him on BiPAP with some improvement in his respiratory status. We give him a dose of azithromycin and ceftriaxone for community-acquired pneumonia coverage and admit him to the medical ICU. Hematology is consulted and the patient receives an exchange transfusion. He is eventually weaned off of BiPAP and downgraded to the floor a few days later and ends up doing well on discharge. The intensivist calls you personally and tells you what an awesome job you did. 
Okay, so let's review acute vasoocclusive crisis and acute chest syndrome real quick, and then we'll bring it home with an overall summary and some take-home points. An acute vasoocclusive crisis is the result of intravascular sickling leading to tissue microischemia and pain. It can be triggered by infection, cold, stress, dehydration, but can often not have an obvious trigger. The diagnosis is mainly clinical since there is no lab test that will diagnose an acute pain crisis. Labs are generally not indicated unless you're suspecting an alternate diagnosis. If you do order labs, you'll find that their labs are largely unremarkable and the patient's hemoglobin should be at or near their usual baseline. Remember that acute pain crisis is a diagnosis of exclusion after you've considered all the other life-threatening diagnoses. The treatment is aggressive pain management, primarily IV opioids like morphine or hydromorphone, but can also include NSAIDs like Ketorolac or possibly ketamine. Oxygen is only for those who are epoxic, and think of fluid rehydration like the Goldilocks rule. Not too much, not too little, but just enough, and only bolus if they are truly hypotensive or in shock. Do not transfuse patients with an uncomplicated acute painful crisis, but it can be considered in cases of aplastic crisis, or splenic sequestration, or hepatic crisis. They usually don't require admission, except in the cases of intractable pain. Acute chest syndrome is a can't-miss diagnosis when evaluating patients with sickle cell pain, since it's the leading cause for morbidity and mortality. It generally involves fever, respiratory symptoms, and new findings on chest x-ray. It is most commonly caused by a pulmonary infection, but can also be caused by pulmonary embolism, fat embolism, or pulmonary infarction from sickling. Remember the symptoms can range from a mild cough and hypoxia to complete respiratory failure, so make sure to always consider this disease and keep a close eye on the respiratory status. The treatment is mainly supporting the respiratory function, either with oxygen, BiPAP, or intubation, and fluid rehydration, but be careful to not over-resuscitate. Antibiotics should be aimed at typical and atypical organisms, for example, azithromycin and ceftriaxone. If they are epoxic, a simple blood transfusion can help, but if the patient is very ill or if they do not improve with all the other interventions, then an exchange transfusion should be done. Since these patients can be very sick and their respiratory status can rapidly deteriorate, they should be admitted to the ICU. Alright, so we've gone over a lot of information today, and now I just want to highlight some key points for you to remember from the episode. Key point number one. Whenever you see a patient with a chief complaint of sickle cell pain crisis, do not anchor on this diagnosis. Do a thorough history and physical, and pay attention to the vital signs to rule any life-threatening diagnoses. And remember, acute pain crisis is a diagnosis of exclusion. The life-threatening diagnoses you always want to rule out are acute chest syndrome, sepsis, pulmonary embolism or fat embolism, aplastic crisis, splenic sequestration, hepatic crisis, and stroke. Key point number two, treat fever very seriously in sickle cell patients since they are functionally asplenic and therefore very high risk. And fever with an unknown source have a low threshold to administer broad-spectrum antibiotics, get blood cultures, and admit the patient. Key point number three, treat acute pain crises with aggressive pain control. Opioid abuse tends to be on par with the general population, and some studies cite an opioid addiction rate of less than 5% in the sickle cell population. So if you have a patient with known sickle cell disease, take them for their word and treat their pain. And remember, in addition to aggressive pain control, the treatment is just the right amount of fluids, 
oxygen if they are hypoxic, and remember to rule out other diagnoses. Final key point, always consider acute chest syndrome since it's a leading cause of death in sickle cell patients. It's classically a triad of fever, respiratory symptoms, and a new infiltrate on chest x-ray. Hypoxia means they have a worse illness, but does not have to be present to make the diagnosis. The treatment is supporting their respiratory function, antibiotics, fluids, and exchange transfusion if they don't get better. All right, well, that's it. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and thanks again for having me on the show. Hey, everyone. This is Steve again. Thanks again to Jared for that complete review of sickle cell disease. Hopefully this episode gives you the tools you need to best treat the next patient that you see with sickle cell. I'd like to take a minute to thank our bandwidth sponsor, EB Medicine. They have published several issues on the treatment of sickle cell disease in both kids and adults, and several of them are available for free, even if you aren't a subscriber. I'll put the links in the show notes on embasic.org. Keep in mind that residents can get free access to all their great resources by going to EB Medicine's EM Basic page at ebmedicine.net slash embasic or following the link at embase.org, and attendees can get a discount on their products that offer CME. That's all for now. Steve Carroll, Ian Basic, signing off.